So uh, Jesus, or excuse me, not Jesus, Caleb started a sermon series for us last week. Uh, don't tell him I said that. Um, uh, but he started a new sermon series for us last week uh, that will be continuing for a little while. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's, uh, it's not on the screen, but um, the sermon series is Worshiping God with Our Emotions. And so we're going to be looking at the book of Psalms and how... Uh, the different psalmists, whether it's David or the other psalmists that are present, uh, we're going to look at the incredible emotions that they display in psalms, and we're going to look at how those are opportunities, no matter what emotional state we're in or circumstances we face, those are opportunities for us to turn to God in worship rather than to turn away from him. And so we're going to be looking at that um, in the coming weeks. So this is going to be following up Caleb's sermon um, in, in this series. But I want to start this morning with a question. I want to ask you, how are you feeling right now? Right now, as you're sitting in the seats that you're in, what is the primary emotion that you're feeling and experiencing? My hope is that it's excitement. My hope is that uh, after singing the songs that we've sung, after praying the prayers that we've prayed, you can barely contain your anticipation for the sermon I'm about to preach. You're just super pumped to hear what I have to say. I'm going to imagine that you're all in that category, right? Um, Unfortunately, that's probably not the case. Um, I know some of you probably are excited to hear God's word, and and that's amazing, and that's great. Um, But perhaps some of you, your mind is elsewhere. Maybe you're worried about something. Maybe you have a big decision that you have to make, and you're not really sure yet what you're going to do. And so that's consuming your thoughts. Or maybe you just have a lot of concerns outside of this gathering today that are grasping for your attention. So you're worried and you're anxious. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you had an argument with your spouse or your children this morning or last night, and that's been unresolved. And so you still have that conflict on your mind and you're mad. Maybe you're weighed down with sorrow or grief over something. Or maybe you're just tired and worn out. Um, I'll admit that I find myself in that camp this morning. Um, Just after a long, very busy, chaotic week. um, It's, I'm incredibly excited to preach this sermon this morning. This This passage that we're going to be looking at has done incredible things for my soul, but my disposition is still more of one that's weary and tired right now. Um, And so maybe you find yourself in that category too, or maybe you don't even want to be here. Uh, Maybe you dragged yourself here this morning because you just feel like it's your obligation, but you'd rather just be in bed and asleep. Uh, Maybe... Maybe lately sleep has been the only thing that's brought you relief or just an escape from the woes of life that you are facing and dealing with. Um, We all find ourselves in different emotional states this morning. We all come from different experiences and circumstances. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what do we do with that as Christians? Um, If we want to rightly and properly worship God, How do we do that in light of how we're feeling? Um, That is what the sermon series is about. That's what we're hoping to look at today um, and in the coming weeks. 
Uh, my hope is that we can help you understand where your emotions fit into your pursuit of living a gospel-centered life. Uh-huh. We're not meant to live emotionless lives. We're not all meant to have the same uniform um, emotions. We all feel exactly the same thing. That's not how, how it even can be. Um, Yet we can all worship God as a united body through our diverse experiences. Um, and so my hope is that we'll see how we can be doing that this morning. Um, every emotion is an opportunity to turn and worship God. Um, this morning, we're specifically going to be looking at Psalm 145. Uh, so if you can, turn in your Bibles there now as I'm talking. Um, I'm about to read the psalm for us this morning. And... Uh, As we're looking at it, I think it'll become pretty abundantly clear to you what the tone and emotional state of the psalmist is, and the psalmist is David in this case. Um, But as we're looking at it, I want you to take note of what he's going through, the emotions he's experiencing, and how he's expressing that, and what he's doing with that emotion. So if you would, follow along with me as I read Psalm 145. The word says this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of, of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is a psalm of praise and celebration. This morning we're going to consider the role of praise in our worship. And when I say worship, I'm speaking of so much more than just this time on Sunday mornings when we have a worship gathering together and we're singing songs and praising God. I'm talking about what it looks like to worship God in our day-to-day lives. I'm talking about when we're worshiping God when we're 
driving to work, when we're figuring out what groceries to buy, when we're disciplining our children, when we're battling against sin and and different fears and things like that, those are the moments when I'm talking about the role of praise. Praising God in happiness, in pain, in fear, in boredom, in so many other things. Because we need to ask ourselves, do we praise God in those moments? We must be careful as Christians that we do not live lives where God is just an idea and he's not a triune person who we can interact with daily on an emotional level. As Christians, we should expect to connect with God on that emotional level. We should use our emotions to turn to God in praise. And that's what David is getting at in this psalm. As we're going to see, the Christian life is a life of praise. That is what he's trying to get at here. A heart that, uh, that comprehends what Jesus has done for us can't help but exalt his name and glorify him. A listless, emotionless heart is dead. It has no beat. It has not been reborn. A heart that is reborn beats with praise to our Lord and Savior. If our hearts are not enlivened by God and his word, then that should be a warning sign to us if we've really turned to him and recognized what he has done for us. Now, my aim this morning, like David's in the psalm, is to help you live a life of praise to our God. We will see that in all seasons of life, we have reason to praise him. We're going to do that in three ways. So we're going to look first at this kind of, I'm going to phrase it as our posture of praise that David calls us to in this psalm. We're going to look then at, um, at the psalm and see how there's two key aspects of God's nature that David uses to induce our praise. And those are two aspects of his kingship. So we're going to be looking at how um, God is a great king and a gracious king and how David points us to those realities and those truths and that induces and elicits praise in us. And so we're going to be looking at it at the passage that way this morning. So to get started, we're going to be looking at the posture of praise. If there's one thing that David makes abundantly clear in this psalm, it's that his intention is to praise God and his expectation is for us to do the same. The psalm itself is titled a song of praise here, a song of praise of David. And the entire structure of the psalm is meant to point us to that very truth. It is intentionally and purposefully written to show that God is worthy of praise and that even ceaseless praise is not enough for him. David was a poet at heart, and we absolutely can see this in this psalm. It shows us very clearly. Um, I'll I'll tell you, my appreciation for this psalm grew tremendously as I was studying and learning about it and seeing the poetic structure and styles that David used when constructing this psalm and putting it together. Um, So much of what he is doing is pointing us to this need to praise the Lord for who he is. First, so we're we're actually going to talk about some of those structures and styles. The first thing is that this is an acrostic poem, uh, which means that each statement uh, starts with a different letter of the Hebrew Bible. We obviously can't see that in the English translation, but if we would see this in the Hebrew, we would see that each statement or line basically starts with a different letter of the Hebrew Bible. 
And David actually does this a couple times in scripture and some other psalms. But the question that we should ask ourselves is, why does he do that here? What is the purpose of that? Is it intentional? And um, I think it is. I think what David is getting at here is that he wants to make sure that the whole alphabet, and in a sense, the full extent of the Hebrew language, is being used to praise and glorify God. It's to further show, and to further show that is the incredible use and diversity of language that he uses to just describe the word praise. Take a look at just the first 10 verses. Look at the first half of this psalm and look at all the different words that, use, that David uses to express the idea of praising God. Just look at it. He, he uses the term extol, bless. He uses praise. He uses commend, declare, meditate, speak, pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, sing, give thanks. He's using all of these different terms to convey this idea of praising God, extolling him, magnifying and glorifying who he is, telling of his goodness and greatness. And that's just the first half of the psalm. The psalmist here wants to magnify God in every possible way, utilizing as much of his language as he possibly can. David is in a sense saying here, God deserves every form, every manner of praise that we can possibly think of, that we even have a term for. God deserves all of it. He doesn't want to leave any stone unturned in the Hebrew language to articulate his celebration of God. He doesn't stop there, though. He uses other structural techniques in the psalm, too, that even further highlight that purpose and goal in his heart, this idea of put, pointing us to praise. Um, this psalm is actually broken into quarters. They're not exactly symmetrical, but it's broken into four quarters. Um, the first one is verses 1 through 3. The second one is verses 4 through 9. The third one is verses 10 through 13a. And then the last one is the rest, so 13b through 21. And you don't need to know that necessarily. But it's, it's so interesting because in each quarter, David does two things. He calls us to praise, and then he gives us a reason to do so. And so, and he follows that order in most of those quarters. So the first, second, and third quarter, he starts with a call to praise. And then he follows that up with saying, and this is the reason why you should praise God for this. The only time that he deviates from that is in the fourth quarter, but he does that by flipping those two things. So instead of starting with the call to praise and then the reason for it, he flips it. He gives the reason to praise and then the call to do so. And even that is purposeful and intentional because that allows him to bookend the entire psalm from start to finish with this idea of being called to praise God forever and ever. I mean, look at verses 1 and 21 with me. It says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. And then verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. David is trying to make it as absolutely crystal clear for us as possible that he wants us to praise the Lord. Um, and he does it through all different creative avenues and poetic techniques in this psalm. And it's just, it's, 
I don't know, I was just really blown away when I was reading about this and thinking about this. Um, and some of you might not be interested in this. Quite frankly, you might not care a whole lot about poetry and acrostic, acrostics and things like that. But as I've been saying, please do not let the point that I'm trying to make get lost on you. David wants to get across this idea that our lives should be marked and characterized by praise for God. The Christian life is a life of praise. David is commending us to that lifestyle through this psalm, and he's thinking of every possible way that he can get that point across. Now, if we take the time to reflect on that, it shouldn't really surprise us all that much. Um, I, think, I think it can surprise us, though, at times when we start to allow ourselves to be controlled by false notions. I know I do this a lot, um, so maybe you do this as well, but a lot of the times in my mind, I oftentimes will think that the truest sign of Christian maturity and godliness is kind of settling into this state of stoic resilience, in a sense, where you don't really... Basically, you're totally unfazed by every storm or wave that life throws at you. It, there, there were years in my life where I legitimately thought, like my desire was to be this guy who um, was like one of those like big boulders on a jagged coastline that's being blasted by wave after wave every single day, year after year, and it just stands there and takes the battering and it's immovable and unyielding. I just felt like I just need to be totally unfazed by everything. Yeah, maybe it experienced, it might experience a few like small cracks or erosion over time that might subtly change it, but overall it's, it's unchanged and unaffected and resolute against the waters raging around it. Because of that, I've always thought that maturity would mean that I would become less emotional of a person. But, but friends, the more that I've learned and the more that I've thought about it and the more that I see like in, in Psalm 145 and the rest of Scripture is that is an utterly unchristian way of thinking. That line of thinking is more influenced by Zen Buddhism than biblical Christianity. As Caleb said last week, the Psalms are rich with emotion um, but in fact, all of Bible, all of the Bible is rich with emotion. David, a man after God's own heart, was an incredibly emotional man who used his emotions to draw nearer to God and to praise him as we see here. Um, but think of other biblical authors too. Think of Paul, think of Peter, think of John. Think of, um, think of women in the Bible such as Ruth and Naomi and Hannah in the Bible, we see that maturity is usually paired with more emotion, not less. And that's because maturity comes with a deeper love for God and for others. Love cannot grow without our emotions with it. Even, even grief, in a sense, deeper grief shows a deeper love for that thing that we have lost. David is modeling all of this for us in Psalm 145. His exuberance and celebration are genuine and wholehearted because his love for God is genuine and wholehearted. 
He's not trying to suppress his love for God. He's seeking to give it every outlet for expression that he possibly can. Yes, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. This is, this is the way that I think. I think, well, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, so I need to exhibit that. But that doesn't mean that that should be at odds with or limiting of the other fruits, such as love, joy, and peace, and goodness. It shouldn't limit and constrain those things as well. Let's give our love and our joy the full range of expression in our, li- in our lives, even if that means in mourning. Um, let's exhibit self-control over things like discontentment and dissatisfaction and sin. Um, friends, we must be men and women who praise God with a deep love and emotion. We're designed to do it. We're made to do it. If we weren't praising God, we'd be praising something else after all. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he talks about how that our nature is such that we are idle factories. Um, Is that not, in a sense, the same thing as saying that we're praise factories? Um, We commend and tell others about those things that we delight in. That is praise. Let's not praise idols, but rather God, who is infinitely deserving of our praise. Enjoy him and the good things that he gives you. Now, one way that I find it helpful, and I think it would be helpful for you guys to think about this, is in terms of posture. Um, Our posture before God must be one of praise. Our disposition will change at times. Um, Sometimes we might be before God with tears of joy. At other times, we'll be before him with tears of sadness and grief. Sometimes there will be confusion and anger written on our face. Our disposition will alter in different seasons of life. But our posture must ever be that of praise. And we're going to get more into what that looks like later. But just keep that idea in mind of this posture. For now, though, we want to turn now to what the psalmist gives us as reasons for our praise. In his loud proclamation of it, he gives us ample reasons to do so. So another aspect of David's structural creativity here in this psalm that I haven't even talked about yet, is a repetition of themes that we see. Um, Each quarter of the psalm has a theme that is emphasized in it. And they repeat so that the first and third quarters emphasize the same theme, and the second and fourth quarters emphasize the same theme. So it has an A-B-A-B structure. The two themes that are focused on uh, both deal with God's kingship, And it's really cool if you think about it that David did this because David himself is a king and he's he's looking at his knowledge and awareness and experience as a king to reflect on God's worthiness of our praise because he is a king as well. And David focuses on two things. He's looking at the fact that God is a king who is worthy of praise because he exhibits two vital traits. The first one is that he has power over his subjects and his kingdom. And the second one, as we'll see later, is that he's committed to his people's welfare. Think about it. A truly worthy king uses his might and power to serve the good of his nation, to serve the good of his people. In this psalm, David focuses on both of those themes, both of those traits in God that he does that. We're going to look at his greatness and his grace. 
So here's where we take David's call to praise God seriously and seek to do just that. Let's consider what David says about God's kingly greatness first. So look with me at verses one through three. It says, I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. David begins by naming God as his God and king. There's a relationship there. Even though David is a king himself and a leader of the nation, he submits himself to God. He sees that any authority that he has is only given to him by his own authority figure, who is God. David is not disappointed by this, though. He's celebrating that fact. He's praising and extolling God. He wants to bless and praise his name, after all. He wants to speak well of God. And how long does he plan on doing this? He says forever and ever. He says it in verses 1 and 2. David wants to spend the rest of his life, the rest of eternity, in fact, praising God and speaking of his greatness. In verse 3, he gets to the grounds of his praise. Like I said before, each quarter has the call to praise, as we see here in verses 1 and 2, and then the grounds for it or the reason for it. And this is where he gets to that. In verse 3, he says, The Lord is great and his greatness is unsearchable. This is the key to David's desire. He yearns to praise God forever because nothing less than that will be enough. Only an infinitely great God and king is worthy of infinite praise and adoration. And God's greatness is unsearchable. That does not mean that we're unable to see or know any of it. After all, we have scripture that reveals God to us. He does allow us to know him in a limited capacity. But what that means is, is that we can never fully know and comprehend God. We can never fully see and acknowledge all of his greatness. There's always more to know and to see and to marvel at. If you spent a million years learning about and studying God, you would be no closer to finally knowing him than you were when you had started. That that idea blows my mind to think about. Um, A picture that helps me think about this is also to kind of imagine a cave and and people that are trying to map vast cave systems in the world. Um, Every cave has a bottom. Every cave has an end. The the, the tunnels come to an end. They hit a wall. Um, Even if they branch out, it still comes to an end. They're they're still finite. Um, There are vast networks of caves in this earth that would take a lot of people many, many years to map out and explore and discover. Um, It might even take them generations to do it, but they'd still be moving towards an end, and they would complete it at some point. With God, that will never happen. There's never an end to his depth and to his greatness. He is limitless, There is always more to explore of his greatness. It is unending. David knows that even if we spend the rest of eternity telling of God's greatness, there will always be better and sweeter truths to speak of. There will always be more marvelous deeds to remember and to be astounded by. That is our God and King. David wants us to remember who our Lord is and the great power he possesses. I mean, just reflect on creation itself. 
We could spend eternity just reflecting on how God created each and every different thing in its own perfect design. It's unbelievable. Now we're going to look at verses 10 through 13a next. This is the third quarter of the poem. So we're going to jump across the second quarter to the third one to continue with the theme that we talked about in this first one. Uh, Read along with me as I uh, read verses 10 through 13. It says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Here we have David focusing a little bit more on God's greatness as king, specifically because of his kingdom. It is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion over it is absolute and will never falter. He is its sovereign and unchallenged ruler. And because of God's mighty deeds, power, and glorious splendor, his kingdom will flourish and thrive forever. David shows in verse 10 that he thinks all of creation, not even just David and God's saints, should marvel at this. This should astound everyone and everything. And this is huge, and we should, we should give everlasting praise and thanksgiving to God for this. Think about what it would be like for us to be part of a kingdom or a nation that could falter or was on the brink of falling apart and failing. We don't think about this a whole lot being in the U.S. because we oftentimes don't think like, oh, is our country going to be standing 20 years from now? Um, Are we still going to be a nation like we are now? We don't think about that often in the United States. But, But think what it would be like to be in a nation where there's constant risk of being occupied by other countries. Consider Ukraine or portions of the Middle East or portions of Africa, for instance. There's constant fighting between different entities trying to take control over the countries. The people of these countries face constant turmoil, constant violence, constant suffering because they're part of broken, war-torn nations that are run by leaders who are fallible and weak. They must think about how much they must yearn for stability and peace in just their day-to-day lives. Think how much they must desire to be part of a nation and a kingdom that is stable and is not at risk of falling apart. Friends, those are people who would recognize with David how precious it it is for us to be part of an everlasting kingdom that is ruled by a king that will never fail. Take heart in that truth. We are assured that Satan will not overcome God's people or his kingdom. We, We have assurance that no false teachers or false prophets will lead God's kingdom astray and into ruin. No social or political movements will kill God's church and his bride. Um, As I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about um, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, The whole message of this hymn is this idea that we need not fear Satan or demons or any earthly powers, even if they can kill us, because Christ's victory is sure. 
our spiritual security, our everlasting and eternal life is not going anywhere because of Christ. Um, and the, the, this, the hymn finishes well. The final verse concludes with this. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That is the comfort that we have. And we have a king who does maintain his kingdom forever. The, the kingdom is maintained that way because of him, not because of it. It's because of our Lord and King and God. We can rejoice in knowing that we, the followers of Christ, are part of an eternal and permanent kingdom because our God and King is great and mighty and fears no adversary. We are safe from all enemies because our King is stronger than all. Let us praise God along with David for that. David doesn't just stop with the theme of God's greatness as king, though, as I was saying before. He also highlights his grace and goodness. Um, so we're going to look at that now. Look with me at the second quarter, so at verses 4 through 9. It says this, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. David has gone beyond saying that he will praise God forever. He's saying that isn't enough. It can't be enough for me just to praise God forever. God is worthy of so many more voices praising his name. He's calling us to, to commend God um, to all generations so that our children and our children's children will know him and know his glory and proclaim that as well. It is not enough for us to privately recognize that God is worthy of our praise. We must, that it must affect the way that we interact with others. Our friends and children should hear f about him from us. This should make us think back to Deuteronomy 6. I mean, if you think about it, when Israel was commanded to teach the laws and statutes of God to their children uh, so that they would fear and know him, we're called to the same. But it goes even beyond that. As people living after the Great Commission, we know that we are called to make disciples of all nations. We are to tell the peoples of the world who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. That is a way that we can praise him by making disciples, by fulfilling the Great Commission. After all, what wondrous works and awesome deeds, as it says in verses 5 and 6, surpass those of Jesus, Christ, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for us. And David points us to that fact, even here in this passage, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth. Let's look again at verses 8 and 9. These are the grounds or the reasons for why David believes all generations should praise our God. It says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. David is anchoring his reason for praise in God's grace and mercy. 
Remember what I said earlier, the two aspects of God's kingship that David is highlighting here are his power over his subjects and kingdom and his commitment to his, be- to his people's welfare, which we see now as we look at his grace and his mercy. David is reminding us that God is an infinitely gracious king and therefore deserves all praise and honor from us. And he goes on to give details and examples to help remind us of that. Look with me at verses 13b through 21. This final quarter of the psalm picks up the same theme as that second quarter that we just looked at did. And it makes it even more concrete and practical for us. How do we know that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? How do we know that he's good and merciful to all? This tells us. It says this, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. David is reminding us of two levels of God's grace here. One is general grace, that he's extended to all of creation. We see that if we just think about nature around us. Ecosystems exist because weather brings water to vegetation so that the vegetation can grow. The vegetation is eaten by small plants and animals, or by small animals. And then those animals are eaten by higher level organisms so that they can be sustained and that their lives can continue and their species can propagate. I mean, think about the Lion King. Think about the circle of life. That's what I'm talking about. And that notion does not exist out of just random chance or because of some nebulous idea called Mother Nature. Ecosystems and life on Earth are sustained because God created order and purpose in everything. All that we need and desire so that life can continue is already provided to us by His design. A display of God's common grace over all life is the way he ordered creation so that life is maintained and sustained. It was kind and compassionate of him to create a universe where life does not keep failing and then he has to start it over again. Life instead thrives and flourishes on this earth. And that's because he's a good creator and king. He's a gracious one. There's another layer to his grace though. God has imparted a special grace to his creation so that we can not only live lives on earth, but we can even have a relationship with him, who is our king. Verses 18 through 20 tell us about God's grace towards all who call on him, fear him, and love him. This part is huge because it gets at the heart of why we know God is committed to the welfare of his people. He didn't just make us and say, go do your thing. Go just live your lives and then you die and you're gone or die and you'll face my wrath for your sins. He doesn't leave us with that. 
He draws near to us when we are at our lowest. He's not a withdrawn and distant king. He is close and intimate with his people. He cares deeply and intensely for every single one of us. And we know that because that he can and does do that because that led him to the cross. Now it would be easy to look at these verses and question God and his grace. It would be easy to say something like, David says that God hears our cries and saves us, but where was God when I was going through this or that trial or hardship in my life? Beware of such accusations, though. Who are we to judge the unsearchable God, as is said in verse 3? Who are we to think that we can understand why he does one thing or not, and not another? Such accusations don't come from a posture of praise. If we want to understand what a posture of praise is, it's not that. Those come from a posture of rebellion against God. We're being critical and questioning of him. And such a posture results in destruction, not joy and peace. It says in verse 20 that the wicked he will destroy. Fear not, though, because we do have proof that God is faithful, true, and gracious. There is an explanation for why we can believe these things. As I said, it's because he went to the cross for us. We know he will uphold the fallen and raise the bow down, as it says in verse 14, because Jesus himself endured the same fate as he approached the cross. We know that he will draw near to us, as it says in verse 18, because Jesus was completely forsaken. We know that he will hear our cries and save us, as it says in verse 19, because no one came to rescue Jesus as he took his last breath on the cross. Jesus entered into all of our possible suffering, everything that we could possibly endure in this life, and worse, so that we could be free of that through him. We do not have a king that can't relate to our worst and lowest conditions. He's entered into them himself. He can relate to our worst experiences. This is the most profound display of God's commitment to his people's welfare. He has faced death and suffering, um, this death and suffering that we deserve so that we might be freed from it and so that we can know that he understands our struggles and cares for us in them. Jesus is the gracious king who saves all who repent and follow him. He's a king who leaves no saint behind. This is why God deserves our unending praise. He's a king so gracious and so good that he faced death so that every single one of his people could have life, eternal life. So where do we go from here? We see that David calls us to praise. We see that the Christian life is a life of praise. And we see that God is truly worthy of all of our praise and worship. But what does a life of continued praise actually look like, especially when our feelings don't match such joyful thinking? This is where remembering to take a posture of praise is important because that transcends any disposition we can have at any given moment. There are seasons in which I'm happy, and I can clearly see these truths that this passage talks about. And 
At those times, my disposition is one of joy. It's one of gladness. And it's easy for me to maintain a posture of praise. I want to tell others about Jesus. I want to tell others about what he is doing in my life and what he has done for me and what he has and can do for them. But there are also seasons when that's not the case. We have seasons of depression. I've experienced these. When I've experienced seasons where my disposition is one of loneliness and deep sadness. And sometimes those seasons last weeks or months. Um, I know... um, I know earlier this year, I experienced, I experienced this for months at a time. I felt like all of the joy was sapped out of my life. I felt like nothing good could happen, and the, all that was left was gloom. The way that I've, I was describing it to people was, it was like I was a ship out, on, out in the ocean in the middle of the night. There's no stars. There's no moon. You can't see anything. I need to find land but I have no bearings. I have no way of telling where the land is and the waves are threatening to to capsize my boat and I have nothing to go off of. That's what, I've felt that for months at a time and I'm sure some of you have felt the exact same thing. But even in those times, we can have a posture of praise. Even in our tears, even when our face is downcast, we can say, God, help me. I know you're my gracious, you're my gracious God and King. I know you can help me. I know you're near, even if I don't feel it. Help me now. We can say that, and that's praise even in those storms, even in those seasons of life. That is a time when we are clinging to him. This psalm reminds us that even if our feelings aren't celebratory, we nonetheless always have a reason to celebrate at the very least. And that should give us immense hope. Our feelings cannot change the fact that we have a great and gracious king who has called us out of darkness and into his eternal kingdom. In the last few verses of this psalm, David acknowledges that there are times when life is hard and we are grief-stricken. But those times can be occasions when we are exercising faith-induced praise rather than emotionally driven praise. And at times, that's the sweetest aroma to our Lord. Those are times when we are able to preach truth to ourselves and hold on to them by faith, even when our emotions say the opposite. When we choose to side with the truth that Scripture calls us to rather than in our emotions, that is the posture of praise that I'm talking about. In those moments, we are choosing to walk according to the truth rather than our fickle feelings. And again, taking heart when you are doing that, that is a posture of praise. And our anguished attempts to cling to truth can be amazing displays of worship to God. That is true in the hard times and in the mundane. Something as simple as remembering God is near and cares for you while you're going about your daily schedule, as chaotic as that may be, that is an act of worship. So read your own emotions. Sometimes they can be an indicator that we're not thinking God is present in our lives. Sometimes they're in a time when They're letting us know, I'm viewing God as absent. So that's a time when you can reflect on that and point yourself back to truth, to remember that he is a great and good and gracious king to you. 
in those moments, even if you don't feel like it, you're living a life of praise. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we have so much reason to praise you. God, as Christians, as those who know what Jesus has done for us, what you have called us out of, what you have blessed us with, God, we have every reason to praise you. And even though our feelings don't match that at times, God, I pray that we would be a people that always has a posture of praise before you, regardless of our disposition, that we would cling to you by faith, that we would remind ourselves and each other of who you are. And God, I pray that that would result in us being a church of deep and unending worship of you, the God who is infinitely deserving of it. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.